You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Kelly Duquette from Boston College. Her paper was entitled Shakespeare's Uncivil Kerns, Irish Contagion and the Emerging British Nation-State. At its inaugural meeting in November 1907, Justice D.H. Madden addressed members of the Trinity College Classical Society. The guest speaker shared with his audience a particular subject of interest which he felt the writers of history had failed to teach him, the conditions of life beyond the English Pale of Elizabethan Ireland. Madden's curiosity led him to Stanyhurst and Hollinshed's descriptions of Ireland, knowing well that these, quote, ponderous tomes were Shakespeare's likely source material for the Bard's representation of the Irish on stage. According to Madden, we may thank Hollinshed for teaching Shakespeare an important lesson about Irish soldiers. How to discriminate between, quote, the rug-headed Irish kern and the Irish gentleman. Shakespeare's distinctions between the different ranks of Irish soldiers grounds the work of this paper. Equally significant is Madden's suggestion in regards to Shakespeare's most famous Irishman, Henry V's Captain McMorris. Madden claims a distinction, a class distinction, and writes that Shakespeare was, quote, somehow led to place an Irish gentleman on the stage. For Madden, Shakespeare's McMorris is, in fact, an aristocrat. When literary critics refer to Shakespeare's Irishman, more often than not, they mean McMorris. He is the only staged Irishman in Shakespeare's works who is privileged to speak. Although I do not engage Madden's discussions of McMorris's gentlemanly qualities, here I do wish to focus on an implicit premise of his argument, that of choice. Madden's focus on McMorris's class suggests there is a version of the Irish soldier Shakespeare chose not to stage. The Irish Kern is the voiceless mercenary not entirely excluded from the action of the plays, yet only known to us through the disparaging voices of non-Irish characters. Unlike McMorris, the Kern is a native Irishman from outside the English Pale, the other Irishman whose native customs, qualities, and behaviors had been documented and demonized as early as the 12th century. My aim here is to explore the Irish Kern's marginalized presence in four of Shakespeare's plays, Henry VI, Part Two, Richard II, Henry V, and Macbeth, in order to answer the following questions. What qualities made the Irish Kern unsuitable for the stage, and why is their presence in the history plays and Macbeth confined to spectral illusions? In the first section of this paper, I conduct a brief historical investigation of the 16th century Irish Kern to show how early modern writers vilified his mercenary qualities in order to fashion English civility. 
Then, I analyze specific scenes wherein the Kern are referenced to demonstrate two important elements of Shakespeare's troping of the figure. First, the Kern embodies Irish barbarity and all that is dangerous about Native Ireland precisely because he figures Irish contagion and the threat of new English degeneration. Second, as mercenaries, the Kern raise questions of loyalty and allegiance which foreground and allude to contemporary Anglo-Irish politics. Ultimately, I conclude that the Kern's spectral presence on the Tudor and Stuart stages reflects England's struggle to openly accept its failure to suppress rebellious native Ireland and its inability to incorporate Ireland into an emerging British nation state. The condition of Ireland posed many difficulties for Elizabeth I. Historians tell us the mere mention of the rebellion in Ireland is supposed to have made her, quote, sick and ill. D.B. Quinn characterizes England's hold on Ireland in the 16th century as slight. John McGurk explains that although royal officials ruled effectively from Dublin over the counties in the Pale, the native Irish made up the majority of the population, and Nekirnach, or the native Irish Kern, lived among the population. They were foot soldiers outfitted with sword, bow, and the javelin dart, and in contrast to their English counterparts, these Irish soldiers' battle garb was minimal. According to Fergus Canaan, the Kern belonged to either of two subcategories of light infantrymen. As members of the Buona, or wandering mercenaries, Kern were often employed by the English for a few months at a time. Alternatively, the Kern who served as peasant clansmen tended to fight for a single Irish lord or chief, defending against both foreign enemies and internal opposition alike. Although Irish Kern had at times served as hired mercenaries to the Queen's army, many turned from England when revolt swept Ireland. Historian G.A. Hayes McCoy tells us that Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, hired Kern as part-time warriors during the Nine Years' War. His victory against the English at Yellow Ford in 1598, for example, has been called a stunning moment in Irish military history by some historians. O'Neill, along with his troops of Galaglass and Kern, not only demonstrated the strength of a unified Irish offensive, but forced England to respond to an Irish resistance as a legitimate impediment to an emerging British nation state. Perhaps it is not surprising that 16th century representations of the Kern in the English imagination are unflattering, to say the least. Stephen Greenblatt and later critics tell us that in the early modern era, the formation of identity as distinctly English is achieved in relation to something, quote, alien, strange, or hostile. Thus, English depictions of Irishness emphasize both a bizarre appearance and savagery. Andrew Hadfield and Willie Maley explain how early modern readings of Ireland render Irishness, quote, a series of negative images of Englishness. And thus, early modern is, quote, a negative of a photograph of English identity, which never comes into view. I contend that in Shakespeare's plays and the works of his predecessors, one photonegative figure of Englishness is the current. The works of Edmund Spencer and John Derrick document that the fashioning of English civility in the late 16th century, paradoxically rests upon a threat of degeneration, a, de a degeneration particular and specific to Irish contagion. To illustrate how Shakespeare's Kern trope functions on the Tudor and Stuart sages, I turn now to his predecessors. 
Edmund Spencer employs the rhetoric of degeneration to convince English readers that this Irish contagion undermines an old English claim to civility. This anxiety is nowhere more explicit than in Spencer's A View of the Present State of Ireland, written in 1596. Eudoxus poses the question, why are not they that were once English abiding English still? To which Arrhenius replies, the most part of them are degenerated and grown almost mere Irish and more malicious to the English than the very Irish themselves. For Spencer, the old English are too far gone and must be annihilated like the native Irish kern. These lines suggest that the innate barbarity of the mere Irish turns Englishmen from their civil upbringing, and Spencer finds no Irishman more barbaric than the Galglass and Kern. Of the Irish soldiers, he writes, Mary, those be the most barbarous and loathly conditions of any people, I think, under heaven. They use all the beastly behavior that may be. They oppress all men. They spoil as well the subject as the enemy. They steal. They are cruel and bloody full of revenge and delighting in deadly executions, licentious swearers and blasphemers, common ravishers of women and murderers of children. Yet, despite this evident barbarity, Spencer admits the skillfulness of Kern as soldiers. Quote, they are very valiant and hardy, very strong of hand, very swift of foot, very great scorners of death. What Spencer commends is also what he regards most abhorrent, the Kern are dangerous adversaries because they are brutal, resistant, and because they have no decided loyalties. Consequently, an Englishman may never trust a Kern. When the Kern are horse boys in youth, they learn, quote, all the trades of the English, only later to, quote, cut English throats. John Derrick's image, image of Ireland in 1581 prefigures ideas of Irish contagion, but roots the Kern's character in bestial wickedness. Moreover, Derek implicates St. Patrick, whom he calls, quote, the chief of all the kern. He asks why the saint drove snakes from Ireland only to leave the kern, referring to them as the most spiteful beasts within this fertile land. Derek continues, accusing the Irish kern not only of neglecting Ireland's resources, but for instigating its collapse. Quote, O pleasant land deformed through all the life of Irish kern. Derek's reference to Kern as beasts and Ireland as fertile validates new English husbandry in Ireland. Here, Derek points to the Kern as the catalyst of degeneration and deformity. By impeding progress, the Kern's physical presence is antithetical to the cultivation of land and resources. Derek's account also condemns the Kern's mercenary qualities. These soldiers' lack of territorial territorial allegiance and loyalty is contagious and causes the degeneration of English civility. And rebels which before did boast, now gone to fly the land, and captains with two-edged swords do give the traitors gear. Here, Derek signals the captain's shift in allegiance figured in his two-edged sword. As a mercenary, the Kern's lack of territorial allegiance means he cannot be trusted. The Kern may at one moment use the edge of his sword for the English cause and at, a, at another turn his sword against it. In these lines, the Kern's mercenary qualities become synonymous with disloyalty and treason. From the perspective of early modern writers like Derek and Spencer, whose works echo that of Geraldus Cambrensis in the 12th century, 
The Kern epitomized disloyalty, rebelliousness, and treason, characteristics of the Irish also represented in Shakespeare's plays, to which I now turn. My analysis of Shakespeare's Kern begins with his earliest appearance in Henry VI Part II in 1590, occurring well into the action of the play. Amidst turmoil at court, a cardinal approaches the Duke of York with news of rebellion in Ireland. My Lord of York, try what your fortune is. The uncivil kerns of Ireland are in arms and temper clay with blood of Englishmen. Initially, the kern pose a serious threat from within Ireland, and as such, Shakespeare confines their uncivil blood spilling to a place offstage. Before leaving to suppress the rebellion, however, the Duke of York, later to reign as Richard III, reveals his deceptive plan to employ John Cade of Ashford to broker rebellion at home. Cade will, quote, make commotion in England under the guise of John Mortimer. York's confidence rests in Cade's own subversiveness as a result of his proximity to the Irish Kern. In Ireland have I seen this stubborn Cade oppose himself against a troop of Kerns and fought so long till that his thighs with darts were almost like a sharp-quilled porcupine. And in the end being rescued, I have seen him caper upright like a wild morisco, shaking the bloody darts as he his bells. Cade's clash against the kern awakens a wildness within him, as if the kern's darts were laced with a poisonous Irish contagion. Cade's infection and resulting transformation signals a degeneration of English civility. With a cue from the kern, Cade will help York provoke England's political uncertainty. Moreover, when York returns from Ireland, he is attended by a mighty, mighty power of gala glasses and Irish kerns. Stephen O'Neill reminds us that this scene marks the only occasion in Renaissance drama where the Irish are collectively staged. He adds that Ireland, as an offstage location, provokes a question of spatial control that captures figuratively, quote, English anxieties about securing political hegemony in Ireland. Likewise, Andrew Hadfield contends that in this scene, quote, Ireland is not simply a difficult kingdom to control, but it is the locus from which rebellion spreads, where Cade can learn his trade and from which York can build up a power base. I agree with both critics' arguments concerning Shakespeare's representation of Ireland as an offstage location, but I highlight two important observations about the Irish onstage namely the Irish soldiers' rapid shift in allegiance and limited agency. York's suppression of the Irish rebellion and near-immediate incorporation of the Kern into his own army takes relatively little time. Two acts later, England's former adversary, the brutal, blood-spilling Kern, is now her hired muscle. This quick and dramatic shift in allegiance simultaneously underscores Irish disloyalty and defangs the Kern of any power previously attributed to them. Once the Kern leave Ireland, they become nothing more than puppets in an English display of political power. Whereas the Duke of York parades the Irish in London, Richard II vacates his sceptered isle in search of the, quote, rug-headed Kern. In Shakespeare's Richard II, 1595, the king wastes little time after receiving word of John of Gaunt's death and quickly refocuses his attention to war with Ireland. Now for our Irish wars, 
We must supplant those rough, rug-headed kerns, which live like venom where no venom else, but only they have privilege to live. Shakespeare here recalls Derek's connection between the kern and the venomous serpent. Richard characterizes the kern as poisonous and scorns their existence in Ireland, a resource to England. As the venom that plagues Ireland, Shakespeare's kern, like Derek's, deforms and corrupts the productivity of Irish land. Thus, the kern frustrates new English colonial ambition. The kern's gross barbarousness and disloyalty, as figurative of the native Irish and old English opposition to English hegemony, leaves the land perverted and vulnerable to further degeneration. While Henry VI, Part II, and Richard II illustrate the specific threat to Irish contagion to English civility, Henry V and Macbeth place Irish barbarity in opposition to an emerging British nationalism. Henry V's McMorris fights for England, and as Willie Maley has suggested, he is most likely a palesman. In Henry V, 1599, Shakespeare clearly distinguishes between the English pale and native Ireland. On the eve of the battle at Agincourt, two Frenchmen mock one another at the Kern's expense. You rode like a Kern of Ireland, your French hose off, and in your straight Strassers. Lisa Hopkins has, su- has suggested that underneath these French hose, it seems, lurk the Strassers of the Irish. And that so close is the element of identification here between England's French enemy and rebellious Ireland that Joel Altman refers to the enemy in this play as the French come Irish. The alliance of the native Irish figured in the Kern with a foreign, French foreign enemy marks a clear boundary and reflects the contemporary state of Anglo-Irish affairs. In one camp rests the British nation-state ideal, England, Scotland, Wales, and the English Pale, as represented in the four captains seen at the Battle of Harfleur. Across the field wait the French cum Kern, a French enemy that England deems worthy, conflated with the native Irish, an adversary England struggles to acknowledge and defeat outright. The final appearance of the Irish Kern is in Shakespeare's, in Shakespeare's work occurs in Macbeth in 1606. Andrew Power's analysis of the play underscores the historical relevancy of the ascendancy of the New English King James, concurrently King of Scotland. Power writes that, quote, in a time in which James VI and First's project for union rested heavily on promoting similarity between Scots and English in manners and language, it is certainly worth exploring Shakespeare's dramatization of Celticness. Here, I seek to complicate critical readings of Irishness in the context of a burgeoning British identity in the years shortly after James's accession to the throne. Mention of the Kern in Macbeth, unlike the earlier plays, makes implicit allusion to the nationality of these foot soldiers. Fresh from battle, a captain reports to the king, the merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel, for that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him from the Western Isles, of kerns and galaglasses is supplied. But all's too weak for brave Macbeth, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, carved out his passage till he faced the slave. Here, MacDonald's rebel army is composed of soldiers from the Western Isles, the Galaglass, most likely from the Western Highlands of Scotland, and the Irish Kern. The Kern are the hired mercenaries who fight alongside the traitor MacDonald at the play's beginning, and who will later accompany Macbeth's efforts <coughs> against Macduff and Malcolm's English army. In these lines, we may read that villainy breeds in Ireland, 
and is the kern who spread a swelling wickedness to the Scottish mainland. Christopher highly refers to the kern of Macbeth as, quote, a shadowy symbolic presence that mark Macbeth's lapse from national savior at the play's opening to a national scourge at its end. In his analysis, Hiley argues that Macbeth's early identity as a self-sufficient warrior is partly achieved through his valiant offensive against the Kern. Later, as murderer, usurper, and tyrant, Macbeth's degeneration and dependency are registered by the fact that he now relies on the same Kern for his own defense. Like the Duke of York in Henry VI, Part II, Macbeth hires the mercenary Kern, constituting another theatrical instance of the Irish as disloyal precisely because they lack territorial allegiance. Macduff therefore scorns the disloyal Kern who have no allegiance to country, claiming, quote, he cannot strike at wretched Kerns whose arms are hired to bear their staves. Macbeth's employment of the Kern signals his deteriorated allegiance to Scotland. If the Kern of Shakespeare's earlier plays embody English anxieties over contagion and English degeneration, Macbeth's deterioration as a result of his proximity to the Kern underscores a growing anxiety over Ireland's proximity to Scotland via a shared Celtic identity and ultimately Scotland's proximity to England. It is possible to read Macbeth's relapse into brutality and disloyalty as symptomatic of his reversion to a Celticness specific to the Western Isles. In bearing witness to the multiplying villainies of the Kern in battle against the Scottish rebel MacDonald, Macbeth's former English qualities of bravery and valor degenerate into savage corruption. In the case of Macbeth, then, the Jacobian stage captures English anxieties over a new Scottish king and the possibility of a Celtic contagion that threatens to unmake not only an English identity in Ireland, but a burgeoning British identity across both islands. In all of these plays, Shakespeare's marginalization of the Kern suggests major complexities of 16th century Anglo-Irish relations. Shakespeare's representation of the mercenary Kern, Kern's lack of allegiance, not only illustrates an imagined Irish disloyalty, but underscores England's inability to trust both native Ireland and a growing population of degenerating Old English. Irish contagion, rampant amongst the native Irish and Old English alike, threatens a new English project in Ireland. Thus, Shakespeare's Kern remains a specter of England's inability to suppress a rebellion and a strengthened native Ireland, both significant obstructions to England's successful incorporation of all four nations into an emerging British nation state. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.